to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome back to the podcast. In the famous Diamond Mountains of what is now North Korea, there is a small temple called Podak Kul. Once it must have been a cave before it was a temple, because the word Kul means cave in Korean. The origin story of this temple we will get to later, uh, but the temple now stands on a cliff face and is supported by two long posts that reach down over a hundred feet into the rocks below for support. From a distance, the temple looks as if it might give way and fall into the valley below at any moment. And it appears as though it's jutting out of a huge rock formation. Although it's impossible to travel into the Diamond Mountains, now, for many hundreds, maybe thousands of years, the Diamond Mountains were a place that many spiritual practitioners would go uh, to take up their, their various forms of practice, Buddhist and even shaman. And as I'm looking at a picture of this temple, Podakul now, it gives you a very eerie feeling. Eventually, this temple came to be inhabited by a very famous Zen master. Word got around that you could go to study with this master, but that if you did, you'd, you would be expected to enter into Yongmeng Zhengzhen full-time. Yongmeng Zhengzhen is a retreat during which there's no sleep and you're expected to meditate uh, most of the day. So students that came to study with this master were expected to exert themselves to the utmost until they saw clearly into their Buddha nature and attained complete enlightenment. The master told them that they would have to forgo all sleep and rest and would only eat once a day vegetables, nuts, and fruits with no grains. He said, one meal a day is enough for your sustenance. If you eat more than that, you sleep off the day. Or he would shout, how can you consume the precious food of the earth without even knowing who you really are and why you're even alive? Anyhow, he maintained that it was better for one's practice if one is a little hungry all the time. The master had a large hole cut out of the temple floor. The hole had a lid on it, like a trap door, so it wasn't noticeable. The master trained two of his bravest fellow disciples and had them spread these words. There is a master in the Diamond Mountains who will transform all sentient beings who come to him into giant Buddhas and Bodhisattvas quickly. So in this way, the master attracted aspiring Zen students. When the students gathered to train, he would post his two tiger-like disciples at the entrance to the temple to make sure no one could get out. Then he himself would sit in the Bodhisattva of Great Wisdom's place, Manjushri, with his glaring eyes, and he would train his student monks hard and strong, with no sleep and very little food. If he found a student dozing, he would immediately grab him by the throat and open up the lid of the hole in the floor and throw him in. 
Half of his body out of the hole, the student would utter such a shriek of terror at the dire sight of the rocks below that a shock would run through the minds of the students in the meditation hall, as if someone had just fallen to their death. After that, no one would doze. It is said that if someone collapsed in the middle of training and couldn't recover, the master would just throw him down the hole, saying, well, he didn't make it, not worth keeping him alive. Better to give him a chance in the next life. So his reputation grew and spread among Buddhist circles. Many criticized him sharply, and others praised him. But whoever came for training would either be dead or come out alive and completely enlightened. The master would say, you cannot attain enlightenment unless you risk your life. So he only attracted indomitable spirits who were determined to attain enlightenment or willing to die in its quest. Eventually, this master came to train 250 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. He said, the Diamond Mountains are great for training. I should have been able to have made 10,000 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Perhaps the monk who comes after me will be able to complete my job, he said shortly before he passed away. There are a few temples like Podak Kul in Korea, which are built on top of precipices. The usual story has it that in remote times, famous monks would seek out these high and inaccessible places for their spiritual practice. The reputation of such and such a monk having practiced there would attract serious monks to the place afterward. Then eventually a small temple would be built upon such a place. Frequently such a temple or hermitage commands a breathtaking view and generates strangely beautiful and unworldly feelings. But perhaps more importantly for the purpose of spiritual seekers, such a place imparts to the Dharma students a strong sense of danger and a profound feeling of impermanence and urgency in their spiritual practice. Podak Kul stands out even among such temples and hermitages. And further, the reputation of the Diamond Mountains and the story of the fierce master who eventually came there and produced 250 awakened monks and beings makes the temple legendary and awe-inspiring. So the following story is a story of its origin. And we now will enter into the lives of a monk named Hojung and Lady Poduck and how their meeting and eventual parting gave birth to this wonderful temple. In the first half of the 12th century, there was a priest named Hojong. He rose high in the hierarchy and was finally appointed as royal teacher to the king of the country. So he led a very prosperous life as a Buddhist priest. One day it occurred to him suddenly that this kind of life would accumulate debt and karma and lead him to eventual pain. He was alarmed at the coming effects of his karma. Therefore, he immediately resigned from his position and went to the Diamond Mountains. He built a hut with pine branches and arrowroot vines and called it Pine an arrowroot hut. There he made a vow to devote himself to the recitation 
of the great Compassion Durrani and chanting for the next 10 years. As he consolidated his spiritual practice, strange and beautiful incidences occurred one after the other. For instance, serpents and tigers would come and help him keep his mind pure instead of doing him any harm. On one occasion, a fatally ill person heard about the devotional practice of priest Hojong and came around to see him. He just wanted to see the holy man before he died. However, he was so affected by priest Hojong's practice that he forgot himself altogether, whereupon his illness left him completely. Sometimes, in the middle of the night, his hut was strangely lit up as though it were broad daylight. And when priest Hojung was deeply immersed in his practice, woodcutters, animals, and birds would all witness radiation from his six receptive faculties. Three years had passed since priest Hojung devoted himself to his spiritual practice. One day, while deep in his practice, Priest Hojong heard a voice, clear and loud as thunder, which said, Hojong, Hojong, leave your place without delay. If you wish to attain the great perfect enlightenment, go south and seek out Skinny Father and Ocean Bright Fellow. Priest Hojong was so struck with the voice that came out of nowhere that he immediately packed and left for the south. When he got there, it was getting dark. He was exhausted from his travel and from searching for the mountain path when suddenly he came across a small one-room house. He entered the house without hesitation and begged to stay overnight. A white-haired old man with an unworldly air came out of the room and received him most cordially. Hojong felt that he had escaped from imminent danger and so thanked the old man deeply. The old man brought in a bowl of boiled potatoes and urged him to help himself. Hunger and thirst are the best taste. In no time Hojong consumed a bowl of potatoes. Then it occurred to him that he had forgotten the proper courtesy so he got up and did prostrations and most politely said, The name of this humble monk is Hojong, who lives in the Diamond Mountains. You spared my life from danger tonight, so I am greatly indebted to you. Do you live here by yourself? Yes, I am an old man who lives alone. Do you have children? No, I have neither wife nor children. Oh, you must be very lonesome. May I ask your honorable name? Name is unnecessary for a person like me who works the soil in the mountains. Please don't say that. Pray tell me, as I intend to serve you as my own father in the future. Well, I cannot refuse since you make such a request. Originally I have no name, but people keep calling me Skinny Father. Huh? You are Skinny Father?
Ho-jong was very surprised. He got up immediately and made more prostrations with his hands folded, and he said, I heard of your fame and came from the great distance in order to seek the perfect way. I humbly beg you to help me attain great enlightenment. What's this? Don't stir up trouble. I haven't got even small enlightenment to mention big enlightenment. I heard your name very clearly, venerable sir, so there can be no mistake about it. No, you're all wrong. Have compassion for this stupid monk. Please kindly lead me to enlightenment. What an annoying fellow you've become. I will have to throw you out if you keep bugging me, yelled Skinny Father. Ho-jong, at his wit's end, he finally asks any Skinny Father with extreme sadness, Do you know by any chance someone called Ocean Bright Fellow? Oh, Ocean Bright Fellow, he's a friend of mine. He lives just over the mountain. So saying, Skinny Father pointed to the mountain in the dark, directly in front of them. The following morning, Ho-jong thanked Skinny Father and climbed the mountain in search of Ocean Bright Fellow. He searched everywhere in the deep mountains, but could find no trace of human beings. As sundown was approaching, he finally located a dwelling. He called out at the front gate, Hello, is anyone home? To his great surprise, a cheery voice of a woman answered Ho-jong's call, asking, Who is it that's come so late? She was very kind and looked still unmarried. I am a monk from the Diamond Mountains who is seeking enlightenment. I am so sorry to disturb you this late, but do you know someone called Ocean Brightfellow who lives here, yes? Oh, he's my father, he lives here. Is he home now? No, he went hunting. Now why are you looking for my father? Well, I have to see him without fail. I'm afraid you're looking for the wrong person. My father, Ocean Brightfellow, is a wild person and very difficult to deal with. If he's in a bad mood, he kills people as easily as you crush houseflies. So reverent, you'd better give up the idea of seeing him and leave this place right away. But it is so dark outside, and I'm not familiar with this area. How can I leave a human dwelling and go elsewhere in the dark night? I agree. You have my sympathy. Even so, it would be better to find shelter somewhere out in the mountains instead of staying here. In this manner, Ho-jong was refused. Ho-jong thought about his situation long and hard. He had come all the way from the Diamond Mountains to find Skinny Father and Ocean Bright Fellow. He had found them, but he was refused at both places. Now he had nowhere to go. After all, had he not come only to seek great enlightenment? What would he be afraid of if he could only attain great enlightenment? With such thoughts, he became more earnest in his spiritual quest and became greatly inspired. So with increased courage and sincerity, he decided to wait for Ocean Brightfellow. He quietly observed the woman. She was neither beautiful nor ugly but was quite amiable. There was something very strange about her, however. When she spoke, she was cold as ice. However, 
Her behavior revealed warm-heartedness and even encouragement. After a while, the woman sensed Ho-jong's determination. She invited him in and prepared him supper. Again, Ho-jong was tired and hungry, so he consumed the food in no time. While waiting for Ocean Brightfellow, Ho-jong was wondering how wild he would be. Just at that moment, a nine-foot giant resembling a mighty demon showed up as though responding to Ho-jong's thinking. He was wearing a bow and a spear, carrying his catch of deer, hare, and badger, all tied to an arrowroot vine. Ho-jong was so overwhelmed with this imposing stature that he ran out of the room and prostrated himself before Ocean Brightfellow. But Ocean Brightfellow burst into a rage. You bald-headed, stupid fellow! You went into my daughter's room without my permission, huh? You must be killed right away. Ho-jong kept bowing at his feet and begged his parson, saying, This humble monk is from the Diamond Mountains. I heard of your fame and great wisdom, so I came to see you, but you are not home. So your daughter invited me in and prepared me a supper, which I have just finished. I had no other motive to be in your daughter's room. Forgive me, please, if I did anything wrong. What's that, you wretch? You entered a maiden's chamber with no other motive? Ha, ha, ha! What impudence! So snarling, Ocean Brightfellow struck a lightning blow on the poor monk's cheek. Oh, my cheek, moaned Ho-jung, holding his cheek. When Ho-jung fell on his knees to the ground, Ocean Brightfellow kicked him mercilessly out of the yard and closed the gate behind him. However, it occurred to Ho-jung even in such a pressing moment, that he would have no other chance to see Ocean Brightfellow. So with all his might, he threw himself against the gate and got himself inside and said to Ocean Brightfellow gently but firmly, I came for no other purpose than to seek enlightenment, venerable sir. I am not afraid of death. I am only afraid that I might not attain enlightenment before I die. Please help me attain enlightenment. This fellow is not totally bad. Look, monk, if you wish to study here, you have to marry my daughter, Lady Poduck, okay? I will do anything you say, venerable sir, but spare me from that alone. Please, since becoming a monk, I have tried to adhere to the monastic rules and regulations for over 30 years now. I cannot possibly stay a monk by breaking monastic rules. So saying, Ho-jong was shedding tears. Rules and regulations! What the devil is that? So you don't like to get married because of them, right? I'll crush you to death for that. With that, Ocean Brightfellow picked up the poor Ho-jong and had raised his mighty fist when Lady Poduck motioned him urgently to obey his father. So Ho-jong hastily surrendered himself. Please, sir, how dare I disobey you? I was just a bit slow in responding. Be prompt to save yourself trouble, Ocean Brightfellow grumbled, and let go of Ho-jong, whereupon Ho-jong fell flat on his back. Thus he was ordered to marry Lady Podoc right away. Ocean Brightfellow had a bowl of mountain pure water brought and placed on a small table where he had just finished his supper. 
Then he had Ho-jong and Lady Podok make deep bows to each other. That was their marriage ceremony. After that, they were told to go and sleep together right away. In this way, Ho-jong was married to Lady Podok by force and had to lead a conjugal life helplessly. However, Ho-jong was pleasantly surprised and relieved to find that Lady Podok had undeveloped genitals. Anyway, the three of them had to live in the same house and earn a living every single day. Each day, Ho-jong had to cut firewood and sell it down in the marketplace. But that was hardly enough to feed three people, so he had to clear mountain land and plant potatoes and yams and raise a vegetable garden on the sunny side of the mountain. And he had to do all this by himself. Every day, he came home exhausted and fell asleep. On the other hand, Ho-jong's father-in-law, Ocean Brightfellow, would go out and hunt every day. He would roast what he had caught that day and drink wine and eat the food every night. But that was not all he did every day. Whenever he found time to do so, he would torment Ho-jong for almost everything. Three years had gone by since Ho-jong came to study under Bright, Ocean Brightfellow. In the meantime, Ho-jong approached Ocean Brightfellow a number of times for spiritual teaching. But each time he was told that the time had not yet arrived. So Ho-jong deeply regretted having come here many times and even thought about running away a few times. But each time he looked at Lady Podok, he could not make up his mind. She did not do anything, but she was always warm and compassionate. One day, in a moment of sadness, Ho-jong reflected, What was the purpose of my coming here? Was it not my spiritual search for great enlightenment? But I cannot consider Ocean Brightfellow to be a good spiritual teacher. Lady Podok is an unusual woman, but I don't think she can lead me to the way of great enlightenment. I am working very hard, like a hired hand, every day, for no apparent reason. Could it be I have fallen into evil karma out of bad luck? I have heard it said that delusion and hindrance increase their strength accordingly as one's spiritual practice matures. I must have been deceived by spirits and misled. He remembered the Diamond Mountains and his hut, where he had devoted himself to reciting of the great compassion Durrani. He became all tearful when he thought about it. With these thoughts, Ocean Brightfellow suddenly looked like a demon. And, 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 and the compassionate Lady Pudok looked like a demon's retinue. And he was filled with self-pity when he looked down at his haggard appearance. His two beautiful hands now looked like rakes from cutting firewood and working the land. He decided to get away from this place as soon as possible. He could not wait any longer. So he went to Lady Podok, my dear wife, I have decided to go back to the Diamond Mountains and pass the rest of my life there doing my old spiritual practice. It was not my intention to come here, get married, and earn a living cutting firewood and working the land. I wanted to attain great enlightenment. I have no spiritual training for three years now, 
so I find it unnecessary to stay here any further. It made Ho-jong very sad to say this. Lady Poduck was also very sad and shed tears. Yes, I understand what you're saying. However, it is said that sincerity moves the heavens. Stay seven more years, my father always says. One should train for ten years to deserve a live word of wisdom. So please be patient and persevere for just seven more years. If you think seven years is too long, how about three more years? I very much regret having wasted the last three years. How could I even bear the thought of spending another three or seven years with no spiritual training? I know that is my obligation as husband to stay with you, but my mind is set upon the way and I have no interest in the world. I cannot help you very much since you are so determined. We will see each other again in the valley of the myriad cascades in the Diamond Mountains sometime in the future. It made them very sad to part with each other. Ho-jong went to Ocean Brightfellow. As he bade goodbye, Ocean Brightfellow muttered, Go if you like, crazy fellow. You can't make it three more years. Ho-jong pretended not having heard him and beat a hasty retreat from the place. Having walked a good distance away, Ho-jong turned around to take one final look at the place where he had spent the last three years. And lo and behold, he could neither find the cottage he used to live in, nor see Lady Poduck or Ocean Brightfellow. He looked more carefully, but there was nothing in sight. Ho-jong was completely puzzled. When he climbed over the mountain, he found Skinny Father making straw sandals. It had been three years since he saw Skinny Father last. Ho-jong was most glad to see him and so ran to greet him. Upon seeing Ho-jong coming, however, Skinny Father yelled, You stupid monk! Could you not stay for three more years? You lost the most precious opportunity for your spiritual growth. Who were they? asked Ho-jong with bewilderment. Your father-in-law was Manjusri Bodhisattva of great wisdom, and your wife was no other than Kwan Samposal, the Bodhisattva of great compassion. After all, what capacity have you had to last three more years, you poor soul? Who are you? asked Ho-jong, very much confused. Me? I'm Samantabra. I've stayed here to show you the way. Now my karmic obligation is over, so I'm going to take leave. With these words, he disappeared from sight. Ho-jung lamented deeply his short-sightedness, but it was no use. He went back to his old pine and arrowwood hut in the Diamond Mountains. It was all overgrown with weeds. One day while working, he had a great longing for Lady Podok and remembered her parting words. So he went to find the Valley of the Myriad Cascades. When he got there, he found Lady Podok sitting on a white rock, combing her hair. He was most delighted to see her, so he ran up, held her hand, and said, You must be Lady Podok. No sooner had he said that, she turned into a bluebird and flew away. This time, Ho-jung became most desperate. 
he felt he should not lose sight of the bird. So he ran frantically after the bird. The bird finally flew into a cave, so he ran after the bird into the cave. But inside the cave, the bird now suddenly disappeared, nowhere to be seen. All this greatly aroused Ho-Jung's doubt. What is this? He sat right there inside the cave, completely engulfed with the koan, what is it? His huadu grew bigger and bigger every moment. He sat with his growing huadu without eating or sleeping. He became fully enlightened. After three days, and in a 1,115 year, Ho-Jong erected a small temple near the cave and named it after Lady Poduk. So says the temple record. Today, all Zen Buddhists chant the great compassion Dharani and recite the Heart Sutra, which reads, The Bodhisattva of great compassion, from the deep practice of Prajnaparamita, perceived the emptiness of all five skandhas and delivered all beings from their suffering. Hi, Sunam. Hello, Myungju. <laughs> well, that was a really, really wonderful story. and um, Very inspiring, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I think I was really struck by the part where, uh, toward the end of the story, where Poduck, Lady Poduck said that uh, sincerity can move the heavens. Mm. And... Yeah. Yeah, I guess when all else fails and you really don't know which way is up, if if that's the message there, that you have to rely on your true sincerity in practice, then I guess that's good enough. <laughs> You've yeah. always, you can always have that. Yeah. Well, of course, I heard that story. I read it the first time uh, in 1983 when it was first published in Spring Wind. And... It was very inspiring. Uh, there were about uh, eight of us practicing full-time uh, in Ann Arbor at that time. And uh, we all had a chance to read that story. And uh, yeah, I, I don't didn't think much about it, but two or three years later when I ended up not only in Korea, but uh, the first winter, we had a, in the middle of the 90-day retreat, we had a seven-day Young Meng Junction, which I, mm. I guess I knew might happen, but I wasn't sure, but it did. And so for seven days, there was no laying down, and mm. we could simply, between 1 and 3 a.m., we could put our knee up and rest our head on it. The rest time we were sitting or mm. walking or, you know, we ate our normal meals in a formal sense. But it was quite a, a difficult thing for the first, for me, it lasted pretty much well over halfway before uh, things began to change and, and brighten up for me. And it was during that time that I 
I reminded myself of that story, mm. how there were monks uh, training not for seven days, but for as long as it took to awaken. And that was really inspiring. And, and uh, I also recalled that when I made my first pilgrimage to Korea in 1984, we went to a, a meditation hall where uh, it was a permanent gilche. They were, they were training without sleeping. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for 90 days. Right. And I remember just at that time, I was completely shocked, like, how anyone could do that. And right. my teacher, you know, when we talked to him about it, he said, it's all relative. We don't understand the kind of training that those people had, and they were fully prepared uh, to the best of their ability, but it's certainly something that you can't out-endure. You know, you can't easily grind through such an experience, especially when it doesn't have, you know, a short seven-day period. Seven days, I think, when I did it the first four, maybe even into the fifth day, I was doing a lot of grinding, and it was a very painful experience. And But it drove me back to my practice, and I was... When it was all, you know, over and said to done, we end, of course, the last day at 3 a.m. and we have breakfast and the whole mountain gets together because the nuns at Kyun Sung Am are doing it, the monks up at Jung Sa, and there we were doing it at Sudok Sa, all on the same mountain. And, and the, we, you know, we'd get together and and uh, one Dam Sunam gave a small talk he realized that uh, we had just finished this, so he wasn't going to. He was going to talk later that morning in his normal, uh, uh, you know, Dharma talk uh, to end the Gilche. So he didn't say much. But I remember walking outside after that and realizing I'm not a bit tired. I was full of energy. It didn't make any sense to me. Right. You know. Wow. So. It was uh, That's remarkable. quite extraordinary. Yeah. So yeah. then, what would you say the alternative is to grinding in our, you know, when we take up practice? That, in that case, when you know you're describing Young Meng Junction, seven days of uh, meditation around the clock without sleep, it's quite intense. So, if you're not grinding, then what's the alternative? Well, the other thing you have to keep in mind is that normally, during Gilche season. We're sitting four periods, early morning, late morning, afternoon, and evening. And now what we do is we add the fifth period up to midnight. And then they usually bring in a gruel or something for us to scarf down and we can lay down uh, or lean up against a wall for 20 minutes or so. And then at one o'clock, we're back on the mats and we're sitting, but during that time, if you want to put your leg up and doze, you can. But I remember the first few days when the three o'clock wake up, the rest of the temple that is there, they're not doing Young Meng Junction. They're actually 
uh, uh, preparing food for us. They're maintaining the temple so that the Zen monks can do Yang Ming Junction. So, so the morning wake up, I come at three, and there we are sitting on our mat. So instead of getting out of bed, folding our yable and going to the bathroom, we just get off our mat and go to the bathroom and we're starting all over again <laughs> with no end in sight. Or it doesn't feel like there's an end in sight. Even in seven days can seem like it's extremely long. Uh, when you first, I say, the first four or five days, it didn't didn't get over it in a hurry, right? So, uh, like, it's hard for me even now to imagine uh, uh, people doing this, right? So would you say the alternative to grinding is uh, sort of radical acceptance of your circumstances? Well, not just acceptance, but look, relishing it as an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for your spiritual growth. And you have nothing. Yeah. So, inevitably, I'm talking in my own experience, you turn to your practice, even though you think you have been doing it. Mm. it you deepen it. And uh, it becomes shockingly easier the last day or two. Just doesn't make any sense. You've been aching and hurting tremendously, yeah. and all of a sudden, you you're fine. Yeah. You're sitting, and you're not. E and I think what's happened is that you've you're finally letting go of yourself a little bit. Yeah. And and that's the experience. You know, there is no self. Yeah. But we made this illusion up, and now we're we're pained by it. Yeah. So the very suffering. I talked about on on Sunday is the first noble truth. I experienced very clearly during that Young Ming Junction. Yeah, it seems like sitting meditation, when you take it into the context of a retreat where you do a lot of sitting and inevitably your mind is hurting, your body's hurting, everything is hurting, it seems a bit like a microcosm of life that um, we're, we're so often just trying to avoid the, mm. the kind of inherent dissatisfactions and yeah. kind of those irritations that we feel whenever we stop. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems like sitting is a microcosm of that in, in a sense. Well, and, and, and the, the, the young Mengjungjian is a microcosm of the 90-day retreat. Yeah. Right? Everything's condensed. Everything's is stepped up. Yeah. And... and if you don't step up with it, it's going to be a rough ride. Yeah. At some point, I think you get to the point where you you just have to let the pain in, and then you realize there's really no pain at all. Yeah. I, I, I prefer to think about it as you finally let go of yourself and simply throw yourself into your practice. Mm. And... and you're disappearing because of it. it. It obviously you're still there, but your 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 body and the how you feel is no longer a focus of your attention, which is usually what we do as human beings. We're mm -hmm. always worried about how we we feel, right? You know, and I think that that's a really hard thing to get over. That our feelings don't, uh, you know, they only matter to us. And they shouldn't because they cause cause us only pain. You fall in love, and you're madly in love for two or three years, and then 
you know, trouble starts and uh, another year or two of suffering, you end up going apart. Yeah. And wondering, is this, you know, what was that all about? And maybe you even have to tr try it successive times because right. you're not convinced. And I think that's it, that, that making suffering a reality that you can't get out of so easily. Like clearly when you're sitting in a meditation retreat, uh, of course you could get up, nobody's chaining you there, but you've come for spiritual practice. So you recognize there, 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 there isn't any way of getting out of this now. There's no TVs to turn on, there's no books to read, there's no yeah. even laying down. Right. And so you choose to do what is necessary the same way I think that somebody that might come upon a burning house with a woman screaming out in front of his child's inside and without any thought for themselves, run inside yeah. and come out saving the baby. And and when they're asked about it, they say, well, what should I have done? I mean, right. it, it was just a completely uh, experience of, of, of pure spontaneity and, and, and oneness. And, and, and in this particular case, it's not always the case when you run into a burning house, I guess, but the child is saved and uh, the woman's grateful. Of course, the child grows up to be grateful and the, the world is grateful going, wow, I wonder if I could do that, mm. right? That's always a question. I wonder if I could do that. You won't know until the opportunity arises. So in a sense, artificially, Young Ming Junction provides you with that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I think the final thing that came up for me around this story is, you know, the story itself that despite monk Hojong not being able to, to recognize the training that he was, you know, what was actually happening, that he was had been given this incredible gift, um, despite the fact that he, in a sense, kind of ruined it, it ultimately worked out in the end. Well, and I think, you know, he didn't really ruin it. I think that all of that, um, you know, had its own purpose. Right. And and the only way he gets to the point where he he it was he was relentless at the end. Right. Right. And that's what it takes. Yeah. And you can just imagine, like in the course of that story, where right. there might be forty or fifty monks that are being pushed that that only relentlessness is going to work. I mean, the fear of being thrown out a trap door in, in the yeah. hall and uh, just the, yeah. the, the bodhisattva of great wisdom sitting up there eyeballing the whole thing. And you, if you've only been in that situation a few times, you realize how powerful it can be if your mind's right. If it's not, you know, there are probably people that ran away from that place. So it's interesting that the origin story kind of sets the table for the uh, the relentlessness of, of Ho-Jung eventually leading to his own awakening. Yeah. Uh, sort of sets the table for the, uh, the great master to train his disciples in such a relentless way himself. Yeah, and it was recalling the very last thing that Lady Pudok said to him, right. that we will meet again. So he never forgot that either. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Very wonderful. Yeah, it's a great story, Sonam. And uh, have a lovely day. You too, young Jew.
Thank you.